Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Telmo Piovani, a full professor at the Department of Biology at the University of Padua, located in Northeast Italy. Telmo is a widely acclaimed expert in biodiversity with an extensive track record of research and publishing on the topic. He also is a frequent guest at international conferences, including speaking at a number of TED Talks. The topic of today's episode is biodiversity, the building block of every creature, every plant, and every substance on the planet. It is the foundation of all existence. While we have touched on the concept of biodiversity in previous episodes of Voices of Nature, such as with Michele Sofisti and Jean-Claude Viver, the conversation with Telmo will be an in-depth examination of biodiversity. To be very frank and very direct, we're facing a crisis of biodiversity at the moment. It is impossible to understate the seriousness of the crisis. Consider the title of a recent paper published by Telmo, Homo sapiens, the first self-endangered species. We will discuss the paper and its findings further in a few minutes, but I want to highlight some statistics from it. For example, every year we are losing a total amount of between 11,000 and 58,000 species, mostly concentrated in the tropical regions. Second, one species is being lost every 20 minutes. And finally, we are extinguishing species that we have not yet even had time to describe. While this will be a very serious and sobering discussion, Telmo has a unique way of explaining the very complex topic of biodiversity and what it means to people and the planet in an easy to understand manner. We also will devote plenty of time talking about solutions to restoring biodiversity on our planet so we all live better, healthier, more prosperous lives. Telmo, welcome to Voices of Nature. We're so excited to have you part of the conversation today. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for this dialogue. So I'm, I'm sure I did not do your, your background and all your accomplishments justice in my brief introduction of you. So can you tell us a little bit of, of your, your background in biodiversity? What inspired you to become such a leading expert in biodiversity? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me know that, that it's a great pleasure, really, for me to have this conversation with you and with the friends of your podcast about nature. So great. Thank you. And what about my, my background? It, it, it's quite strange because I have an, a hybrid background because I studied physics and then philosophy of science at the University of Milan in Italy. Um, but then again, I decided to move to another field, uh, the evolutionary biology. And I studied at the American Museum of Natural History in New York uh, with Niall Selvridge and Ian Tartersal, that are two very famous, very important thinkers in, in, in evolution and biology. And, and I studied uh, namely uh, macroevolution. So uh, speciation, the birth of new species, uh, phylogenies, tree of life. So uh, the big picture about, about evolution, not, not, not genetics or something like, not molecular evolution, but the great picture of evolution. So then I came back to Italy and working in evolutionary topics with always with a strong interest for philosophical and theoretical issues as well. So 
I became the first philosopher of science in Italy to be elected as president of, of the National Society for Evolutionary Biology. So I'm really in a hybrid between two, two fields. I'm also strongly involved in science communication. Uh, and maybe you know that. So with TED Talks and science festivals and exhibitions, museums, and so on. Because I, I strongly feel that we need new new languages for the public engagement uh, into science and, and mainly about environmental crisis and, and biodiversity. So that's all. Now I teach evolutionary biology and science communication in a department of biology in Padua. So I still remain an hybrid species in, in, in the academic world. You mentioned that you give TED Talks. And, and so I want to pick up on one of the comments you made in a TED Talk that you gave about seven or eight years ago in the the link to it is on the, the page uh, for this podcast on the Global Conservation Corps website. But the statement that you made in the TED Talk, I think, really puts into context what we'll be talking about today. And you said, and, and I'm paraphrasing this a bit, but if we look at the Earth and the biodiversity, the first thing that we notice is that humans are on the edge of the empire. and We're not the center of the story. Explain what you mean by that, because humans are so used to thinking that they are the center of all things, but that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's an amazing discovery because also, also for lay people, not, not involved in science. And the idea is very simple. So if you look at the, at the tree of life, so uh, at the tree of life that we are able to reconstruct thanks to uh, molecular phylogenies and, and comparisons between genomes and calculating mutations that accumulated in different branches of a group of species and so on. And if you look at, at the very general global picture of all the biodiversity on Earth, past biodiversity and, and current biodiversity, the revelation is that we are truly peripheral at, at the age of the empire, exactly, because we are a small subset of mammals, of course, within the animal kingdom, and then with a common ancestor with fungi and, and plants, then within the large group of, of uh, eukaryotes related to archaeobacteria, bacteria, and, and so. So we are really a very small branch inside the great tree of terrestrial biodiversity. And that's great for me. For example, if we ask an ex extraterrestrial intelligence, so by hypothesis, what are the most successful forms you see on Earth? I think that he or she would answer bacteria and viruses, because which are much older than us, more adaptable, mutable, more resilient, as we have seen also with the pandemic, and widespread everywhere. So I think it's important to have this perspective about man's place in nature, so a very classical, philosophical, and scientific uh, question. So another, I, I've seen recently in Nature an incredible paper published by a team led by Ron Milo, that is a biologist from Israel. We humans, you, you can see in this paper, we humans are only the 0.01% of the Earth biomass. Yet our objects, so what we built, so from skyscrapers to cars, everything made by humans, according to this paper, weight more than all the biomass put together. 
that is 1,100 billion tons. So this is the real weight of the Anthropocene. So human things together weigh more than all plants and animals put together. I think that that's crazy. And, and that's exactly what is happening today. We are a small thing in nature, in biodiversity, but we are able to produce even more objects than uh, than the life itself. That's incredible. Let's come back to that point in a moment. But first, let me uh, have you or ask you to explain to us, uh, especially for those of us who have forgotten everything that we learned in our biology classes uh, far too many years ago, explain to us what is the concept of biodiversity and why is it so fundamental to our entire existence? Yes, that's very important. So I would say that biodiversity is our insurance for the future, in my vision, because biodiversity is the measure of the richness of ecosystems uh, at the level of the number of species, for example, but also in terms of the abundance of populations within each species, like in the case of insects and invertebrates, and also at the level of genetic diversity in species and populations. So biodiversity is a multi-scale, multi-level uh, concept and, and measure. So it's fundamental for our existence because we live thanks to biodiversity and we tend to, to forget this point because biodiversity gives us oxygen, soil nutrients, food, water, shelter, um, you know, protection from diseases, climate regulation, and so on and so on. So, and also there is also the aesthetic value of biodiversity, the recreational, even spiritual value of biodiversity. So we are immersed in biodiversity and we depend on biodiversity. Um, two months ago, for example, a large report on the economics of biodiversity has been published in UK, commissioned by the UK Treasury uh, Department and edited by a great economist, Parta Dasgupta, and the evidence, if you, if you look at this document, speaks very clear. And according to this great review, with many data, with a lot of very, very impressive evidence, since our economies depend on biodiversity, and it's much more expensive to restore natural environments than to preserve them, according to Dasgupta, uh, at this rate, the economic and social consequences of the of the disruption of environment will be catastrophic, especially for already poor countries. That's another point. And according to this, this document, we need a Marshall Plan for the environment and many other actions. For example, natural, uh, I love this point, natural capital must be introduced into the measurement of the wealth of nations because the GDP tells quite nothing about what is happening about uh, man's place in, in nature. So, and so on. So, and, and I think that that's important to discuss about biodiversity today, even because COVID-19, for example, is another of the costs that we pay for the destruction of nature, in particular for the deforestation and the, the exploitation of animals. So, and now we have a great opportunity because the exit strategy from the pandemic could be a great chance to redirect our investments toward environments and, and, and knowledge. So I think it's important to discuss about that. And what is amazing for me is that some a few years ago, 
you could find these messages, for example, in Greenpeace documents or in, in ecological movements and so on. Now you read these messages every week in the most important science journals. So that's, that's I think it's a great difference with, with the past. Samuel, could you just explain to us a little bit more about the connection between COVID-19 and the impact that that's obviously had on not just human health, but frankly, our socioeconomic well-being and biodiversity loss, ecosystem destruction, and also touch on the fact that this is not an isolated incident, right? Something similar happened with Ebola, something similar happened with SARS. I mean, this is a, this is very much a recurring pattern that if we don't start addressing these fundamental issues like biodiversity and ecosystems, it's going to happen again and again and again. Exactly. That's a very, very interesting point, very important point to discuss in these months because, uh, you know, uh, pandemics already uh, always happened in, in, in human evolution. Uh, we know that in our DNA, we have more than 80% of our DNA that is that comes from viruses, from retroviruses. So it's, it's, it's a long story. But what we are observing today uh, is that pandemics outbreaks um, become more and more frequent and more and more violent and contagious, um, at least since the, the last half century. And this is not a coincidence. This is not, not for chance, not, not a random effect. It's due to ecological uh, factors. And according to uh, Tony Fauci, for example, the, the, the great U.S. Uh, virologist and David Morens and many, many other experts, uh, they say that today we are entering what they called the pandemic era. So we are entering a new phase of human evolution in which pandemics um, become more frequent. And the reason is exactly the pathological relationships between humans and environment. Because if you destroy ecosystems, if you uh, destroy the forest and mainly the primary forest, for example, in Amazonia or in Indonesia or in Africa and so on. And if you exploit animal sources with uh, poaching, with uh, illegal trade of exotic animals, uh, like is happening, it's a it's a very um, rich um, illegal trade uh, in in the world. So, if, or again, the weight, the the tradition of the wet markets in Asia or in South America. These all these are actions that increases that increase the likelihood of uh, spillovers, of, of viruses spillover. So we, with our actions, we are creating the pandemic era. So pandemic COVID-19 was not a fatality, was not something unpredictable. We know that we predicted exactly uh, this dynamic. So we are with the, the, the loss of biodiversity is strictly connected to the fact that we have more pandemic outbreaks in Africa with Ebola or in Asia with coronaviruses and so on. So literally, literally, this is again another cost that we pay for the destruction of biodiversity. So when we, we say that biodiversity is an insurance for our future, we mean exactly this, that, that biodiversity is also protection against pandemic because if we respect environment we um, decrease the possibility that animals carrying viruses um, 
come into contact with humans. That's, that's a very important point for the future because today we are discussing about vaccines and vaccines are very important for this case, for COVID-19 and for the next one and so on. But if we do not remove the ecological and deep causes uh, of the environmental crisis, we have to wait for another pandemic and then another and then another one. So we have to work on the on, on the ecological causes of what is happening today. And to play out the human element of this a bit more, when we talk about biodiversity, we're not talking just about plants and insects and animals going extinct. There's also the risk of cultures and identities as, as human beings and even the communities that we live in going extinct as well. Can you explain that connection to us? Yeah, I think this is, this is a very important concept. I, I published uh, some papers about that. So what we call in, in technical terms, biocultural diversity. I think it's very important because where there are the, the greatest biodiversity hotspots in the world, if you check, there are also everywhere the greatest concentrations of cultural diversity in terms of native communities, uh, languages, dialects, cultures, traditions, and so on. So if we destroy the richest ecosystems of diversity, we are also extinguishing a large amount of cultures, of human cultures, as we have been doing for five centuries now, with the globalization of the economy and trade, of course. So for me, this means two things. The first is that there are common patterns that explain this parallel and, and intertwined evolution of biological and cultural diversity. And in Padua, for example, in other universities in Canada also, we are trying to discover this pattern. So perhaps the factors that are the wealth of resources, the irregularity of the territory that creates many physical and ecological barriers, migrations, mixing, and so on. And the second point is that if this is true, biocultural diversity, it means that we cannot protect and conserve biological diversity if we don't defend and protect cultural diversity as well, together. And it, it, makes, it makes no sense to continue, for example, with... Um, I call paternalistic conservation projects in which we uh, Westerners go to tropical and equatorial countries and, in, and then close parks and reserves, perhaps reserved for few very uh, rich and wealthy tourists and so on. We needed to build conservation projects together with local communities and projects that give prosperity and future, especially to local communities. As Pope Francis said, uh, there's no defense of the environment without social justice. And I think he's right. He wrote in, in, in the Laudato Si document, uh, the cry of the herd and the cry of the poor people rise together. And I think he's right. Inequalities are the enemy of people, but also the enemy of our environment. So I think that we need new, a new vision and, and also new international regulations for that. Yeah, I, I would say the most common theme that's come up in most every conversation in this podcast series has been the recognition that, this, you know, solutions to just in the broadest sense, just protecting the environment or saving nature or protecting biodiversity 
investing in natural capital must have a local community, local individuals driving the development of that concept, the development of the solution, and then its execution. And that if, to your point, if there's this Western paternalistic approach, it's never going to work. It's never going to have the local credibility. And as Pope Francis said, it will never achieve the social justice, the socioeconomic justice that frankly everyone deserves. And and I think if there's one theme that this podcast really needs to do more to bring out, it is just that, this the, the importance of the local solutions. Yeah, I want to now return to the paper that I touched on in the in the introduction, which you just published, and it's titled Homo sapiens, the first self-endangered species. What do you what do you mean by that very provocative title? <laughs> yes, exactly. It was a provocation. It's it's a funny story because, um, as you know, in, in the the UCN organization has introduced several categories. We know to indicate threatened species. So we have vulnerable species, very vulnerable, endangered, on the age of extinction, and so on. So in in a in an international conference in Lisbon a few years ago, I proposed to introduce a further category that of species that by altering and and impoverishing the ecological niches in which they live, they jeopardize not only the existence of other species, but also their own existence. So self-threatened species. It was a provocation, but they took me seriously and, and they published this point. And another funny point is which species we should include in this new category, because we... Maybe you know the story of the Irish moose, the Irish elk, which was not an elk and was not Irish anyway, but it was a subarctic deer. Anyway, he said that um, that it jeopardized its existence due to uh, the uh, enormous growth of antlers in, in males. So in, in that case, sexual selection took over natural selection, then climate changed and it became extinct. We don't know. Anyway, certainly Homo sapiens is one of the self-dangered species because continuing to destroy ecosystems must then adapt more and more uh, costly, uh, more and more hardly, to an environment that it has itself transformed. This is a very interesting, very dangerous uh, uh, evolutionary um, perspective, evolutionary process. Um, since Darwin, we, we, we call this process niche construction. So organisms that are able to adapt to environment changing uh, parameters of the environment. And we humans are the champions of the world in this process. We are the champions of the niche construction. But niche construction implies that future generation has to adapt to an environment that we have dramatically and radically changed. So the next generation inherit from us a more unstable biosphere. And this is not fair. That's another point. We are not investing in our future, and this is a very dangerous um, trend, very dangerous process. So is that how we remove ourselves from the endangered species list of investing more in our future, investing more in the, the restoration of nature? Sure, of course. I, I think that we have to, uh, in my mind, we have we should act on two levels. Uh, the first is the bottom-up uh, process. So bottom-up means that we have to change our destructive behaviors uh, as individuals towards nature. 
and I'm I'm refer I'm, I mean energy efficiency, uh, changing our consumption habits, what we buy at the supermarket or at the mall, uh, the change in our diet with less meat, especially less meat from intensive farms that we know have a devastating impact on biodiversity, on climate change, in water consumption, and in the spread of antibiotics and so on. But then I think that we need a second level that is a top-down, top-down process. So I mean new legislation that favors the ecological transition, such as today the Green New, the, the green new Deal in Europe, for example, uh, which is a great opportunity to invest in the environment and uh, in scientific research. So I think that we need these two bottom-up and top-down uh, actions because I... In, as a philosopher of science, I, I love this idea of a scientific um, environmentalism. So a way to see and, and to protect environment um, with, a, with an alliance with the best science and technology. Because thanks to research, we can find uh, increasingly sustainable and, and creative solutions. But I think also that our environmentalism should be humanistic because today the interests of nature and human interest now coincide. They are the same. So for me, being an ecologist today means being a humanist. I, I think it's a, something quite counterintuitive, but I think that we need a new, a new phase of philosophy of environment. You you mentioned the, the Green New Deal and, and you talked about your the bottom-up and top-down approach. And I'd like your thoughts on where the private sector, you know, where companies fit into this, into your vision for how to kind of reformulate nature and our approach to nature. Because you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the uh, Dasgupta report on biodiversity loss and the consequences of that. And my, my reading or my big takeaway from that report was, is one who looks at these types of issues from a, almost a market-based or an economy-based perspective, which was you know, his, his point that, you know, for too long, companies have treated nature as just this endless source of resources they can take from rather than, rather than an asset that needs to be invested in and nurtured over time so as to not only protect society and the future of society, but actually ensures that businesses have the resources they need to succeed and thrive going forward. What do you see as the role in the, in the private, of the private sector in this Kind of your approach again to to restoring nature and biodiversity. Um, let me say that when 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 I I read the Dasgupta document, Dasgupta review, I, I was impressed by the fact that a radical criticism again uh, some of the basis of the capitalistic economy uh, written by by an economist of the Royal Society in UK. So um something is changing we have to change our political categories and our political uh, assumptions anyway the private sector for me can play uh, i think a fundamental role as long as it it's not just greenwashing of course because we must i think that we must verify that the transition of a company uh, for example towards the circular economy uh, is effective and not just uh, facade not just uh, advertisement so we must check in Italy, but in Europe, this is a, a very hot topic. We must check that, for example, the advertisements of uh, 
private uh, companies are truthful. Today on TV, we see many companies that define themselves as organic and sustainable, but we must check and, and we must improve this. this um, because uh, above all, I think that ecology, ecological transition must be rapid. Many companies I know and with whom I have been in, in dialogue, have a dialogue in, in Italy, uh, have this strategy, for example. They say, okay, uh, we are preparing for the green transition. But in the meantime, let's using fossil fuels and business as usual as long as possible. I think that that's not good because we don't have time to wait anymore. And because environmental costs are rising rapidly, including pandemics and extreme weather events and uh, hydrogeological disruption that in Italy is dramatic, uh, melting of the glaciers, desertification, environmental refuges, and so on. So the private sector really plays a central role for me, especially in making the ecological transition cost-effective and, and sustainable, because I think that um, environment and defense cannot be a business for rich people, for educated, cool people in our midtowns. I, I think that the green economy must be popular or must become popular for all people. Is there a company or a, or a city, a community, or individual that you would point to that's really helping push society beyond the status quo and helping us accept the urgency of the situation and, and finding ways to mitigate the urgency of the situation? Yes, of course, in, in Europe as well. I think there are, there are many positive experiences. For example, my, my preferred ones are the cases of what we call decentralized or integrated cooperation. So, for example, helping uh, native communities to protect their environment on their own without external impositions or even environmental tourism or scientific tourism. So slow tourism, bring, bring in tourists to enjoy wonderful ecosystems, but without consuming them, teaching them the respect of, for nature and so on. And again, again, another very, very important line for me is fair trade. So, which is very important to defend smoke and local productions and biodiversity and in the same time to guarantee earnings and returns to local communities. So that, that's a positive, very positive experience that could become uh, examples and models. And then, of course, you have the state, you have the national environmental protection legislation. So, for example, in Costa Rica or in Scandinavia or in Greenland or in other regions of the world. And then also movements like Fridays for Future or Extinction Rebellion that is in Europe now is very is strong. I think they are doing a lot to mobilize and engage uh, new generations. So I think these are all examples of very good experiences. I believe in, in what Edward Wilson, that is one of the fathers of, of the concept of biodiversity, wrote in a recent uh, book. And he said, we must protect with all these positive experiences, we should protect half of the Earth's surface, uh, including oceans and including local communities, in order to stop the great mass extinction of biodiversity. And now the protected area is about 20% of the Earth's surface. We have to add another 30%. And, and Wilson concludes the, the books 
with these words. Yes, we can, but we have to decide to do it. So I think it's it, it's wonderful. So we need positive examples, but also we, we need the belief that we can do it, that it's possible. It's not a utopic or idealistic uh, perspective. See, these protected areas, are they scattered throughout the world or are they very large, very widespread areas that just you know, are, are contiguous in nature, cover vast amounts of, of, of space, of land, of water, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. That's the point because the 20% uh, calculated by Wilson is uh, made of scattered and, 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 and unfortunately, frequently small areas with the exception of, of the marine areas that, that could be uh, larger. So 20% is just an average uh, calculation. So what we need is to reach uh, a higher uh, level, for example, so 45 and 50%, and, and also to add connections, so corridors uh, between these areas. But anyway, the, the calculation in Edward Wilson is just an average calculation. And in order to, to, to uh, prove that we can do it, we have just to enlarge and enlarge the the part of the, the earth surface protected. And protected means not without humans. Protected means that we have humans, we have communities inside, communities inside, but without deforestation, without pollution, without the all the activities that we know reduce uh, biodiversity. So it's really integrating these protected areas into every aspect of not just the planet, but every aspect of our lives, right? Because you couldn't, you can't just protect like Greenland and say, well, we've, we've done enough. We've, you know, we've basically protected what amounts to a continent. And that's, that's a long way towards this 50% of Wilson's desired protected area. It's rather taking a much more integrated approach where we, again, integrate these protected areas into every aspect of our lives, right? Exactly. I think this is exactly what we need, an integrated approach, integration of environmental uh, interventions, intervention on the environment and biodiversity and social intervention. And I think that, that even our people listening can do a lot in, in everyday life, so in our, in our behaviors. Yeah, so can you, can you build on that? How can those of us who are not evolutionary biologists or experts in biodiversity or scientists working in the field take concrete steps in our day-to-day lives to help restore biodiversity and protect nature? Yeah, I think that we can do a lot of things in different lines. Anyway, I think that it's very important to be aware about connections. I I think connections is, is very important because we have to be aware about that our life and health depend on biodiversity. For example, uh, when people watch on TV a deforestation scene in, in the Amazon, uh, or in Congo, or in Africa, we should immediately feel that that event also involves and affects uh, our lives, our health, or the next pandemic virus, the next uh, hurricane. So we have to remember um, that there, there are disconnections. Another example is in, in the supermarket, when we should remember that when we pay um, very little, for example, for a gallon of, of, of gasoline or for a kilo of meat. We should remember that within that low price, there are 
environmental and social costs that are not written on the level. Uh, so I think that's important. So our lifestyle must change, of course, but not necessarily becoming poorer, but different. So more sober and wiser. So I think that this change will pay off economically in the medium and, and long term. And if it, as a philosopher of, of biology, I, I know that even if it doesn't sweep for us, we, we must understand that as a matter of principle, we have no right to extinguish the other forms of life that, that share the planet with, with us. So no reasons um, at all. So we have to change our relationship with nature. And I hope, that's my hope, that um, with the pandemic, I hope that the pandemic uh, taught us that nature is not made for us, that nature has no purposes, no no intentions. It's, it's not an entity external to us. We are part of nature and we are responsible for the effects to, of our actions on the rest of nature. I think that would be a great change in our perspective. That is, that's a beautiful perspective. And I hope that's, that's something that all of us can, can take to heart. As you said, it's, it's not about becoming poor. It's not about punishing ourselves, but it's rather about finding better ways to not only to coexist, but to, to live and to, to thrive going forward. So, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. One last question. And, and I end every episode with this question. And I think for this conversation, it's particularly relevant because we've, you know, we've talked about the human species going extinct and it's so easy to, to look at topics like biodiversity loss and just feel the, the negatives and to, to feel the risks. But there's still reason to be hopeful, despite all of those risks facing us. What, what makes you hopeful for a better future? <laughs> you mentioned the extinction, but I have to say that I don't believe that human species uh, is at risk of extinction we, because we survived many, many very, very difficult situations in our past. Uh, even with great ecological changes. So we have a lot of resources for change. But the problem for me is at, at which cost we will be able to survive to this environmental crisis. So uh, I'm very hopeful uh, towards the next generations. That's the main point for me. Because I have three teenage children, so I see that they are, they are for me, uh, climate change natives. So I, 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 I see that they think differently from me. Uh, they have a different brain. Um, they think in a more proactive, uh, more pragmatic way, for example. And I, I, think, I think they are right. And, and I think they are literally right because just an example, two, two generations ago, scientists back then would never have imagined or predicted that we, uh, me, you and me, and we at our generation would have discovered, for example, uh, gene editing or the internet or much more. So in the same way now, we cannot imagine or predict what our grandchildren will discover in two generations, perhaps who knows, uh, artificial photosynthesis or uh, nuclear fusion or who knows. So I put my hopes in, in human creativity and in our intelligence and, and curiosity. And so in, 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 
in what I I, I would call the, the the wonderful serendipity of science and the, the the serendipity of the of the human brain and our discovery. So this is why I I'm I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. The wonderful serendipity of science. I love that. I love that concept, and that's that's such a, a wonderful way to end this podcast conversation. So Tomo, thank you very much. It's been both uh, an education as well as an inspiration. So I really appreciate your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Bob. And, and I hope to, to, see you, to see you soon. Likewise. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing you in person, Tomo. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>